Did you know that MongoDB University has been completely redesigned from the ground up? Hands-on labs and quizzes, bite-sized video lectures, learn at your own pace, study guides and materials, 100% free access to MongoDB training. Visit mdb.link slash learn. Advance your career and learn MongoDB today. Check the show notes for links. Hi, everybody. This is Gaspar Petit. I'm from Square Enix. Welcome to this MongoDB podcast. MongoDB was perfect for processes. There wasn't any columns predefined, any schema. We could just add fields. And why this is important is designers, producers, they don't know ahead of time what the final game will look like. This is something that evolves. You do a prototype of it. You like it, you don't like it. You undo something, you redo something, you go back to something you did previously, and it keeps changing as the game evolves. It's very rare that I've seen a game production go straight from point A to Z without twirling a little bit and going back and forth. So that back and forth process is cumbersome for the back. And the requirements are set in stone. You have to deliver it so the game team can experience it and then they'll iterate on it. And if you're set in stone on, on your database and each time they change something, you have to migrate your data, you're wasting an awful lot of time. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we're talking with Gaspar Pati of Square Enix, maker of some of the best known, best loved games in the gaming industry today. We're talking about how they're leveraging MongoDB and a little bit about Gaspar's journey as a software architect. Hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the MongoDB Podcast. MongoDB Podcast. Exploring the world of software development, data, and all things MongoDB. And now your hosts, Michael Lynn and Nick Raboy. Hey, Nick, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Mike. I'm really looking forward to this episode. I've been looking forward to it for, what is it, more than a month now, because it's, it's really one of the things that hits home to me, and that's gaming. It's one of the reasons why I got into software development. So this this is going to be awesome stuff. What do you think, Mike? Fantastic. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. And we have a special guest, Gaspar Petit from Square Enix. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Fantastic. Maybe if you could introduce yourself to the folks and let, let folks know what you do at Square Enix. Uh, sure. So I'm software architect, uh, online architect at Square Enix. I've been into gaming pretty much my own life. I, as a kid, I was drawing uh, levels, uh, game levels on piece of papers with my friends. Went to university as a software engineer, worked in a few uh, companies, some, some were gaming, somewhere around gaming, for example, at the Autodesk or uh, uh, well, Image, uh, and then got into gaming. First game was a multiplayer game, and it led me slowly into multiplayer games. First uh, company was at Behavior and then to ADOS, working on uh, the reboot of Tomb Raider on the multiplayer side. Took a, a short break, went back into data, actually a company called Datamine, where I learned about the backend, how to work. It was on uh, Azure Cloud at the time. And I learned a lot about how to do these, uh, these processes on the cloud, which turned out to be fascinating, how you can converge a lot of requests, a lot of users into a distributed environment and process this data efficiently. And then came back to Square Enix as, as a lead at the time for the, uh, internally we call it our team, the online suite, uh, which is a team in charge of uh, many of the, of the Square Enix game backends. And I've been there for a couple of years now, uh, six, six years, I think, uh, now became an online architect. So my role is, uh, making sure we're developing in the right direction, using the right services, 
that our solutions will scale, uh, that they're, they're appropriate for the needs of the game team, uh, that we're giving them good online services, basically, and that they're also reliable for the, for the users. So the the Tomb Raider reboot um, was that your first big moment in in like the professional game industry, or did you have prior prior big moments before that? I I have to say it was it was probably probably the one I'm, I'm uh, one of the one I'm most proud of. To be honest, I played I, I worked on a previous game. It was called Naughty Bear. It wasn't a great success from the public's point of view. Uh, the 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 Metacritics weren't great. But the, the team I worked on was an amazing team and everyone on that team was dedicated. It was a small team. The challenges were huge. So from my point of view, it was, it was a huge, that game was a huge success. It didn't make it, the public didn't see it that way, but the challenges, uh, it was a, a multiplayer game. We had the requirements very, fairly last minute to make this a multiplayer game. So we had to turn a single player into multiplayer, do the replication, a lot of, a lot of uh, complicated things in a short amount of time. But with the right team, with the right people, motivated. So that was actually, to me, that was my my first uh, gaming achievement. You said the game is called uh, Naughty Bear. Naughty Bear, yes. What, what type of game is that? Because I'm not familiar with that. No, not not many people are. It's a game where you play a teddy bear uh, waking up on an island, and you you realize that uh, there's a party, and you're not invited to that party. So you just uh, go postal and kill all the bears on, on the island, pretty much. Uh, but there's a, there's AI involved. There's different ways of killing. There's different ways of interacting with those teddy bears. And of course, I mean, there's no blood, right? So it's it's not violence. It's yeah. just plain fun, right? So it's playing a little bit on that side. On the, the, the yeah, on, but it it's uh, it's on a small island, so it's very limited. But the the, the fun is about uh, the AI and playing with friends. So there's uh, you can play as the bears that are trying to hide, or as the bear that is trying to carnage uh, the island it this is pretty much what introduced me to leaderboards uh multiplayer replication we didn't have any save game it was it was a uh, over 10 years ago so the cloud was just uh building up uh, but you'd still have add matchmaking features these kind of features that brought me into the, the online environment awesome um in regards to your naughty bear game and before we get into the square enix stuff what did you use to develop it it was all C++, a little bit of Lua back then. Um, on, like I said, on the, on the backend side, there wasn't much to do. It. We, we used the first party APIs, which were C++, connected to their server. The rest was a black box uh, to me at the time. I didn't know how matchmaking worked or how all these leaderboards worked. I just remember that um, it felt a bit frustrating that I remember posting scores, for example, to leaderboards. And um, sometimes it would take a couple of seconds for the, the rank to be updated. and I remember feeling frustration about that. Why, why isn't this updated right away? I, mean, I just posted my score and can take a minute or two before my rank is updated. But, and now that I, I'm working back in, I totally get it. I understand uh, the volume of uh, scores getting posted, the ranking, the, the sorting, all, all the challenges on the back end. But to me, back then, it was still a, a, a black box. So was that game leveraging MongoDB as, a, as part of the back end? No, no, no. It was, uh, like I said, it, it, it wasn't really on the cloud. It was just first party API. I, I couldn't tell you what Microsoft Sony uh, is using, but uh, from our point of view, we were not using any, any uh, in-house database. So and I, that was at a different company that was at uh, Behavior. And I'm curious, you know, as an as a early developer in your career, what things did you learn about game development that you still take with you today? I 
think I think a lot of people are interested in game development for the same reasons I am. It is uh, very left and right brain. You have a lot of creativity. You have to find ways to make things work. Sometimes you're early on in the project and you get a chance to do things right. So you architect things, you do the proper design, you even sometimes draw UML and like organize your objects so that it's all clean and you feel like you're doing theoretical, uh, academic almost uh, work. And then the, 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 the project evolves. And as you get closer to the release date, this is not something that will live forever. It's not a, a project that you will recycle and needs to be maintained for uh, the next 10 years. This is something you're going to ship and it has to work on, ideally on the day you ship it. So you start shifting your, your focus saying, this has to work no matter what. I'll have to, I have to find a solution. There's something here that doesn't work. And I, I, don't have to find, I don't have time to find a proper design to refactor this. I just have to make it work. And you shift your, your way of working completely into ship it, make it work, find a solution. And you get into a different kind of creativity as, as a programmer, uh, which, which I love, which is also scary sometimes because you put, put this uh, duct tape uh, in, in your code and it works and you, you're wondering, should I feel right about shipping this? And actually nobody's going to notice and it's going to hold and it will, the game will be fun and it doesn't matter that you have this duct tape uh, somewhere. So it is, it is, I think this is part of the, of the fun of shipping the game, making it work at the end, no, no matter what. And it doesn't have to be perfectly clean. It has to uh, be fun at the end. Uh, this is definitely one aspect of it. The other aspect is the real time. Uh, you want to hit 30 FPS or 60 FPS or more if you're on PC, people are now demanding more. But you want this, this frame rate. And at the same time, you want the AI and you want the audio and you want the physics and you want everything in that and that in that FPS. And you somehow have to make it all work and you have to find whatever trick you can. If you can pre-process things on the hard drive, assets, you do it. Whatever needs you can optimize, you get a chance to optimize it. And there's very few places in the industry where you still get that chance to optimize things and say, if I can if I can remove this one millisecond somewhere, it will have actually an impact on something. There's backend has that in a way, MongoDB, I'm sure if you can remove one millisecond in one place, you, you get that feeling of, I can now perform this amount of more queries per second. But the game also has this aspect of, uh, I'll be able to process a little bit more. I'll be able to load more assets, more triangles, render more things, or, or hit more uh, bounding boxes. Uh, so yeah, the performance is definitely an interesting aspect of the game. So you spent a lot of time doing the actual game development, being, being the creative side, being the, the performance engineer, things like that. How was the transition to becoming an online uh, architect? So, I mean, you're no longer, as, I assume at least, you're no longer actually making uh, what people see, but what people experience in the back end, right? W what's that like? That's, that's right. So it, was a, it wasn't an easy transition. And uh, I was a lead on the team for a couple of years. So I got that from a few candidates joining the team. You could tell... They wish they were doing gameplay or graphics and they got into the backend team and it feels like you're, okay, I'll do that for a couple of years and then I'll see. But it ended up that I, I really loved it. Uh, you get a global view of the players, what they're doing, uh, not just on a single console. You also get the ex to experience the game as it is live, which I didn't get to experience when I was uh, programming the game. You program the game, it goes to a disc or a digital format. It's shipped. And this is where Jillian, you take your, your vacation after when the game is shipped. The exhilaration of living the moment where the game is out, monitoring it, seeing the player 
uh, well, sometimes disconnect or having some, some problems, monitoring the metrics, seeing that the game is performing as expected or not. And then you get into other interesting things uh, you can do on the back end, which you, I couldn't do on the game, is fixing the game after it has shipped. So for example, you discovered that the balancing is off. Uh, something on the game uh, doesn't work as expected, but you have a way of somehow figuring out from the back end how you can fix it. Of course, ideally you would fix it in, in the game, but nowadays it's not always easy to uh, repackage the game uh, on each platform and deliver it on time. It can take a couple of weeks to fix a, to fix a game from the code. So whatever we can fix from the back end, we do. So we need to have the proper tool for monitoring this, um, this humongous amount of data coming our way. And then we have to, we have this creativity kicking in saying, okay, I've got this data. How can I act on it to make the game better? Uh, so we, I still get those feelings from the back end. And, and I feel like the line between back end and front end is, is really blurring lately. I mean, anytime I get on, online to play a game, I'm, I'm forced to go through the update process for, for many of the games that I play. To what degree do you have flexibility? I'll, I'll ask the question this way. Um, how frequently are you making changes to games that have already shipped? It's not that frequent. It's not rare either. It's somewhere in between. Ideally, we would not have to make any changes after the game is out. But in practice, the, the games are becoming so complex, uh, they no longer fit on a small uh, 32 megabyte uh, uh, cartridge. So th there's a lot of things going on in the, that game. They're, they're huge. It's almost impossible to get them perfectly right and, and deliver them on, within a couple of years. Uh, and there's also a limitation to what you can test internally. Uh, even with a, a huge uh, theme of QA, you will discover things only when players are experiencing, experiencing the game. And the flow of, like I said, the flow of fixing the game is, is, is long. It, you have to, you hear about the report on Reddit or, or on Twitter, and then you try to reproduce it uh, internally. Right, right there, you take, might take a couple of days to get the same bug the player has reported. And then after that, you have to figure out in the code how you can fix it. I make sure you don't break anything else. So it can take literally weeks before you fix something very trivial. On the back end, if we can uh, try it out, we can segment a, a specific fix for a single player, make sure for that player it works, uh, do some uh, blue-green uh, introduction of that test or do it only on staging first, making sure it works, doing it on production. And within a couple of, sometimes I would say, a fix has come out in a couple of hours in, in some case where we noticed it on production, went to staging and to production within the same day with, with something that would fix the game. So ideally, uh, you would put as much as you can on the back end because you have so much agility from the back end. Um, I know players are sometimes cold about this idea of using backends for game because they see it as a threat. I don't think they realize how, how, how much they, they can benefit from fixes we do on the back end. So in regards to the back end that you're heavily a part of, what typically goes into the back end? Like, I assume that you're using quite a few tools, frameworks, programming languages. Maybe you could shed some light onto that. Uh, yeah, sure. So typically there is, there is all, uh, in almost every project, there is some telemetry um, that is useful for us to monitor that the game is working as, like I said, as, as expected. There's uh, we want to know if uh, the game is crashing. We want to know if players are stuck on a level and they, they can't go pass through it. If there's an achievement that doesn't lock or something that, that should be happening and doesn't happen. So we have we want to make sure that we're monitoring these things. Uh, there's 
depending on the project, we have uh, community features. Um, uh, for example, uh, on comparing what you did in the Life is Strange series to what the community did. In, uh, in sometimes it will be engagement, so creating challenges that will change on, on a weekly basis. In some cases, uh, recently for, for Outriders, for example, we have the whole save game uh, saved online, uh, which means which means two things, right? We can get an idea of the state of each player, but we can also fix things. So it really depends on the on the project. It goes from simple telemetry, uh, just so we know that things are are going okay, and we can or we can act on it. Uh, to having some game logic on the back end getting like, executed on on the back end. And what are the frameworks and and development tools that you leverage? Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so we the backends we we write are written in uh, in Java. Uh, we have different tools we use uh, outside of the backend. We we deploy on Kubernetes. Almost everything is Dockerized at this point. We use uh, MongoDB as the main storage. Uh, Redis as a, as a ephemeral storage. We also use Kafka for uh, the telemetry pipeline to make sure we don't we don't lose them and can process them asynchronously. Jenkins for building. So these are this, this is pretty much our environment. We also work on the game integration. This is in C and C sharp. So we, we our team provides uh, and actually does some C development where we try to make a a HTTP client C clients that is cross-platform and it, as efficient as possible, so at least impacting the frame rate. Uh, even sometimes it means downloading things a little bit slower or, or, or uh, not taking as many ticks, but we, we customize our HTTP client to make sure that the impact, the online impact is minimal on the gameplay. So the, our team is, is in charge of both the, this client integration into the game and the backend uh, development. So those those uh, HTTP clients are those like custom SDKs that you're providing your own internal developers for using? Exactly. So it's our own library that we maintain. It it makes sure that we what we provide can authenticate correctly with the backend, um, has the right way to communicate with it, the right retries, the right queuing. Uh, so we we don't have to enforce through policies to each game themes uh, how to connect to the backend. We can provide we can uh, bundle these policies within the SDK that, that that we provide to them. So what advice would you have for someone that's just getting into developing games? Maybe maybe some advice for where to focus on their on their journey as a as a game developer. Uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think it starts for the advice I would give is it starts uh, of course being passionate about it. You have to because um, there's a lot of work in the gaming. It's it's true that we do a lot of hours. If we did not enjoy the work that we did, we would probably go somewhere else. But it is fun. If you if you're passionate about it, you won't mind as much because the success and the feeling you get on each release uh, compensates the the effort that you put in, into those projects. So first first you need to be passionate about it. You you need to be wanting to to get those projects and be proud of them. And then I would say not to focus too much on one aspect of gaming because at first I did I did several things right I, I, my studies were on uh, uh, image processing I wanted to do three D rendering at first that was my my initial goal as, as a teenager and this is definitely what not what I ended up doing I did almost everything I did a little bit of rendering but almost almost none um, I ended up in in the back end and I I learned that almost every aspect of the game development is as something interesting and challenging. So I would say not too much to focus on uh, uh, doing the physics or the rendering, 
sometimes you might end up doing the audio and that is still something fascinating how you can uh, place your audio within the scene and make it sound like it comes from one place and hit, hit the walls and then there's in each aspect you can dig and do something interesting and the games now at least in, within Square Enix they're, they're too big for uh, one person to do it all so it's, it's generally you will be part of a team anyway and within that theme, there will be something challenging to do. So I would say not not to um, so maybe and even the back end. I, uh, I know not so many people consider back end as their first choice, uh, but I think that's something uh, that's that's actually a mistake. There is a lot of interesting things to do with the back end, especially now that there is some gameplay happening on on back ends and in, increasingly more logic happening on the back end. Um, like I, I would. Personally, not go. I don't want to say that one is better than the other, of course, but I, I would personally not go back. So, and and I never expected to love it so much. So, be open-minded and be passionate. I think that's that's my general advice. So, speaking of backend, can we can we talk a little bit about how Square Enix is leveraging MongoDB today? Yeah, so we've we've been using MongoDB for quite some time. When I joined the team, it was all already been used. We were on, I think, version two point four. MongoDB had just implemented authentication on collections, I think. So um, quite a while ago, and I saw it evolve over time. And I remember, I, if I can share this, I remember my first day on the team hitting uh, MongoDB. And I was coming from a, um, a SQL-like uh, world. And I was thinking, what is, what is this? What is this query language in JSON? And of course, I couldn't query anything at first because it all seemed, the syntax was uh, completely strange to me. Uh, and I didn't understand anything about sharding, anything about chunking, anything about how that, that database worked. So it took it actually took me a couple of, of months, I would say, before I started uh, appreciating what Mongo uh, did and and why it had been picked. So it had been recommended. If I remember, I, I don't want to say incorrect things, but I think it had been recommended after before my time. It it was a consulting team that had recommended MongoDB for the gaming. I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly why. So over time, what I realized is that MongoDB was perfect for our, our processes because there wasn't any uh, columns predefined, any schema. We could just add fields. Uh, if the fields were missing, it wasn't a big deal. We could encode in the back end. We could just um, set them to uh, default values. And why, why this is important is because the game team generally doesn't know. I don't want to say the game team, actually, the designers or the producer, they don't know ahead of time what the final game will look like. This is something that evolves. You play, you do a prototype of it. You like it, you don't like it. You undo something, you redo something, you go back to something you did previously, and it keeps changing as the game evolves. It's very rare that I've seen a game production go straight from point A to Z without twirling a little bit and going back and forth. So that back and forth process is cumbersome for the backend. You, 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 you're asked to implement something before the requirements are set in stone. You have to deliver it so the game team can experience it and then they'll iterate on it. And if you're set in stone on, on your database and each time they change something, you have to migrate your data, you're wasting an awful lot of time. And after, like I said, after a couple of months, that, become obvious, that became obvious that MongoDB was a perfect fit for that because the game team would ask us, hey, I need now to store this thing or can you change this type to that type? And it was seamless. We would change a string for an integer for a string. We would change, we would add a field to a document. Um, and th that was it. No migration. Uh, the backend would, would, if needed, the backend would catch the cases where a, def uh, a default value was missing, but that was it. 
And we were able to progress with the game team as they evolved their design. We were able to, to follow them quite rapidly uh, with our, our non-schema database. So now I'm, I'm, I wouldn't switch back. Uh, I got used to the JSON query language. I, I think human beings get used to anything. And once you're familiar with something, you, you, you don't want to learn something else. And I ended up learning the SQL, data, the SQL Mongo uh, syntax. And now I'm, I'm actually very comfortable with it. I do aggregation on the command line, uh, these kind of things. So it's just something you have to be patient of. If you haven't used MongoDB before, at first it, it looks a little bit weird, but uh, it quickly becomes quite obvious why it is designed in a way. It's, it's actually very intuitive uh, to use. In regards to game development in general, who is determining what the data should look like? Is that the, 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 the people actually creating the uh, local installable copy of the game? Or is that the backend team deciding uh, what the model looks like in, in general? It's a mix of both. We, our team act as a, an expert team, so we don't dictate what the backend should be. But since we've been on multiple projects, we have some experience on, on the good, good, good and bad patterns. Um, and in MongoDB, it's, it's not always easy, right? You, you, we've been hit pretty hard with uh, anti-patterns in the past. So we, we would now uh, jump right away if, if the game team asks uh, something to st- well, some, us to store something in a way that we knew would not perform well uh, when scaling up. So we're cautious about it. But in general, the, the requirements uh, come from the game team, and we translate that into a database schema. I would say in, in a few cases, the game team knows exactly what they want. And in those cases, we generally uh, just store their data as a raw string on uh, MongoDB, and then they can process it back, whether it's uh, JSON or, or whatever other format they want. We give them a field and saying, this, this belongs to you, and use whatever schema you want inside of it. But of course, then they, they won't be able necessarily to query uh, into that data. It's more of a storage uh, than anything else. If they need to perform operations, then we're definitely involved uh, because we want to make sure that uh, they will be hitting the right indexes, that the sharding will be done properly. So it's, it's a combination of uh, both sides. Okay, so we've got, we've got MongoDB in the stack. And I'm imagining that as a developer, I'm going to get a development environment. And tell me about the the way that as a developer, I'm interacting with MongoDB, and then how does that transition into the production environment? Uh, sure, so every developer has a local MongoDB. We use, we use that for development. So uh, we have our own, right now it's Docker Compose uh, image, uh, and it has a full virtual environment. It has uh, all the, the other components I mentioned earlier. It has Kafka, it has even LDAP, it has a bunch of things running virtually, including MongoDB. And even inclu- it's, it's even configured as a sharded cluster. So we, we have a, shard, a local sharded cluster on each of our machine to make sure that our queries will work fine on, the, on an actual sharded cluster. So it's, it's, very, it's actually very close to production, even though it's, it's on a, uh, our local, local PC. And we start with that. We, we develop in Java and write our unit tests to make sure we cover uh, what we write and don't have regression. And those unit tests will run against a local uh, MongoDB instance. At some point, we are about to release something on production. Uh, when, especially when there's a lot of changes, we want to make sure we do load, load testing. For load testing, we have something else. And I, I'm not sure that that's a very well-known feature from uh, MongoDB, but it's extremely useful for us. It's the um, MongoDB operator, which is an operator within Kubernetes. And it allows spinning off uh, 
clusters based on, on simple YAML. So you can say, I want a shard cluster with uh, three, three, um, uh, node, uh, uh, three uh, deep, five shards, and it will spin it up for you. It will take a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes, depending on what you have in your YAML. And then you have it. You have your cluster configured in your Kubernetes cluster. And then we run our tests on this. Uh, it's, it's a new cluster, fresh. Run the full uh, test, simulate millions of, of requests of users, destroy it. And then if we're wondering, you know what, does, this, does, this, uh, does our backend scale with the number of shards? And then we just spin up a new shard cluster with twice the number of shards, expect twice the performance, run the same test again. If we don't have, well, generally we don't, won't get the exactly twice the performance, right? But we'll get an idea of this operation would scale with the number of shards and this one wouldn't. Uh, so that operator is very useful for us because it'll allow us to simulate these scenarios uh, very easily. There's, there's very little work involved in spinning up these, these Kubernetes uh, clusters. Uh, and when, then when we're satisfied with that, we go to Atlas, uh, which provides us the uh, deployment of the, 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 the cloud-ready uh, clusters. Uh, so this is not me personally who, who does it. We have an ops team uh, who handle this, but it will prepare for us through Atlas. It will prepare the, the, final, the final database that we want to use. Uh, we work together to find the number of shards, the, the type of instance we want to deploy, um, and then Atlas takes care of it. The, we, we benefit from uh, disk auto-scaling on Atlas. Uh, we generally start with lower instance to set up the database when the, the day approaches for the game release, we scale up instance type again through Atlas. Uh, in some cases, we've realized that the number of shards was insuffic insufficient after uh, testing. And Atlas allows us to make these changes uh, quite close to the launch date. So that, that, what that means is that we can have a good estimate um, a couple of weeks before the launch of our requirements in, in terms of infrastructure. But if we're wrong, it doesn't take that long to adjust and say, okay, you know what? We don't need five shards, we need 10 shards. And uh, if, uh, especially if you're before the launch, you don't have that much data, it, it just takes a couple of minutes, a couple of hours for Atlas to um, redeploy these things and get, get the database ready for, for us. So it goes in those three stages of going local uh, for unit testing with our own image of Mongo. Uh, we have a Kubernetes cluster for, for load testing, which use the Mongo operator. And then we use Atlas in the end uh, for the actual cloud deployment. We actually go one step further when the game is getting old and the load is predictable on it and it's not as high as it used to be. We move this, uh, this database in the house. So we have our own data centers uh, and we will actually share Mongo instances for multiple games. So we, we co-host multiple games on a single uh, cluster, not single database, of course, but a single Mongo cluster. And that becomes very, very cost effective. Uh, we, we, we get to see, for example, there's a sales on one game while the other games are, are less active. It takes a bit more load, but next week something else is on sales and it, they kind of average out on that cluster. So uh, older games, uh, I'm talking like uh, four or five years old games tend to be moved back to on-premises uh, for uh, for cost effectiveness, so so it's great to know that you can uh, have that choice to to bring games back in when they become old and and you need to to scale them down. Uh, maybe you you can talk about some of the other benefits that come with that. Uh, yes, well, it, it it also ties in into the other aspects I mentioned of um, 
we're, we don't feel locked with MongoDB. We have options. So we have the, the Atlas option, which is extremely useful when we launch a game and it's high risk, right? If, if an incident happened on the first week of a game launch, you want all, all ends on deck and as much support as you can. Uh, after a couple of years, we know we know what the kind of errors we can get. We know what what can go wrong with with the backend, and generally the, the volume is not as high, so we don't necessarily need uh, that kind of support anymore. Um, and it's also, I mean, there's also a lot of, of uh, overhead on on running things on the cloud. If you're on the small volume, uh, there's the uh, there's a, the, the, the not just the, the Mongo itself. There's the pods themselves that need to run on a compute environment. There's the tra the traffic that is counting. Uh, so we have that data center. We're lucky to have, we actually have uh, multiple data centers. We're lucky to be big enough to have those, but it, it gives us this extra option of saying, we're not locked to the cloud. Uh, we, it's an option to be on the cloud with MongoDB. Uh, we can run it locally on a Docker. We can run it uh, on the cloud where we, we can control where we go. And th this has been a key element in the architecture of our backends from the start, actually, the, making sure that every component we use can be virtualized, brought back on premises so that we can control locally, for example, we can run the tests and have everything controlled, not depending on, on the cloud. Uh, but we also get the opportunity of getting an external team looking at the project with us on the critical moments. So I think, I think uh, we're quite happy to have those options of running it wherever we want. Yeah, that's, that's clearly a benefit. Talk to me a little bit about the, the scale. Um, I know you, you probably can't mention numbers and uh, transactions per second and things like that, but um, this is clearly one of the challenges in the gaming space. You're going to face massive scale. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you're facing with the, the level of scale that you're achieving today? Uh, yes, sure. That, that's actually one of the challenging aspects of the backend, making sure that you won't hit a ceiling at some point, or an unexpected ceiling. And there's always one, you just don't always know which one it is. When we prepare for a game launch, regardless of its success, we have to prepare for um, the worst, the best success. I don't know how to phrase that, but uh, the best success might be the worst case for us. Uh, but we want to make sure that we will support whatever, whatever number of players comes our way. And we have to be prepared for that. Um, and depending on the scenarios, it can be extremely costly to be prepared for, for the worst slash best, um, because it might be that you have to overscale right away and make sure that your ceiling is very high. Ideally, you want to hit something somewhere in middle, in middle where you're comfortable that if you were to go beyond that, you, you would be able to adjust quickly. Uh, so you, you sort of compromise between the cost of, of, of your launch uh, with the risk. And getting to a point where you feel comfortable saying, if I were to, re to hit that and it took 30 minutes to recover, that, that would be fine. Nobody would mind because it's such a success that everyone would understand at that point. That ceiling has to be pretty high in the gaming industry. We're talking millions of concurrent users that are connecting within the same minute are making queries at the same time on their data. It's a huge number. Uh, it's difficult. I think even for the human mind to comprehend these numbers when we're talking millions. It's, it, yeah, it is a lot of requests per second. So it has to be distributed in, in a way that will scale. And, and that was also one of the things that Mongo, I realized Mongo did very well with the, the Mongo S and the Mongo D split. So a shared cluster where you, you, you pretty much have as many databases as you want. You can split the workload uh, on as many databases you want with the Mongo S routing it to the right 
to the right place. So if if you're um, if you're hitting your ceiling with two shards and you had two more shards, in theory you can get twice the, twice the volume of queries. Um, for that to work, you have to be careful. You have to shard appropriately. So this is where you want to have some experience, and you want to make sure that your shard keys is well well picked. This is something we've we've tuned over the years. We've had different uh, experience with different shard keys. Uh, for us, it it maybe I don't know if everyone in the gaming is doing it this way, but what seems to be the most intuitive and most convenient shard key is the user ID, and we hash it. Uh, this way, it goes to every user profile goes to a random shard. And we can scale Mongo with pretty much the number of users we have, which which is generally what what tends to go up up and down in our case. Uh, so we've had a couple of projects. We've we've had small smaller clusters on one, two, three. Well, no, we pretty much never have one shard, but two shards, three shards, and we've been up to thirty plus shards uh, in some cases. And uh, it's never really been an issue. Uh, the size Mongo wise, I would say there's there's been. Uh, issues, but it wasn't really with the architecture itself. It was more of the query pattern, or um, in some cases, we we would pull too much data in the cache, and the cache wasn't used eff efficiently. But there was always a workaround, uh, and it was it was never really a limitation on the, the database. So the sharding model works very well for us. So I'm curious how you test in in that type of scale. I imagine you can duplicate the load patterns, but the number of Transactions per second must be difficult to to approximate in a development environment. Are you leveraging Atlas for your production load testing? No. So uh, we're we're well. Yes. Yes and no. So uh, we are using uh, the the initial tests are done on Kubernetes using the Mongo operator. So this is where we 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 will simulate uh, for one operation. We will test will it scale with instance type. Uh, so adding more CPU, more RAM. Will it, will it scale with number of shards? So we do this grid on each operation that the, the players might be using um, ahead of time. At some point, we're comfortable that everything looks right, but testing each operation individually doesn't mean that they will all work fine, they will all play fine when they're mixed together. So the final mix goes uh, through the either the production database, if, if it's not being used yet, or a copy, something that it would look like the production database in Atlas. So we spin up a Atlas database uh, similar to the one we expect to use in production, and we run the final load test on that one just to get clear number of with with the real components. What will it look like? So it's not necessarily the the final cluster we will use. Sometimes it's a copy of it, uh, depending if it's available. Sometimes there's already certification ongoing, or QA is already testing on production, so we can't hit uh, the production database for that. So we just uh, spin a, a a different instance of it. So this this episode has been fantastic so far. I wanted to leave you leave it open for you giving us or the listeners I should say any kind of last minute words of wisdom or any anything that we might have missed that you think would be valuable for them to walk away with. Uh sure, so maybe I I I can share something about uh why I think uh we're efficient at what we do and why we're so enjoying the work we're doing and it has to do a, a little bit with uh, how we're organized within Square Enix with it, with the different teams, and I mentioned earlier that uh, with our interaction with the game team was not so much to dictate how the backend should be for them, but rather to act as experts. And this is something uh, I think we're lucky to have within Square Enix, where our our operation team and our development team are not initially acting uh, purely as service providers. 
Uh, and this touches Mongo as well. The, the way we integrate Mongo uh, in our ecosystem is not so much, at, it, it is in part, please give us database, please make sure they're healthy and working and give us support when we need it. But it's also about tapping into different teams as experts. So Mongo for us is a source of experts where if we need recommendations about shard keys, query patterns, uh, even how to use a Java driver, uh, we, we get a chance to ask uh, MongoDB experts and get accurate feedback on how we should be doing things. And we, we this this translates on every every level of our processes. We have the ops team that will, of course, be monitoring and making sure things are healthy, but they're also acting as experts to tell us how, how the development should be ongoing or what are the best practices. And the dev team does the same thing with, with the, the backend dev team does the same thing with the game dev team where we, we will bring them our recommendations of how the game should use, consume the services of the backend, uh, even how they should design some features so that it will scale if, efficiently or tell them this, this won't work because uh, the backend won't scale, but act as experts. And I think that's, that's been key for our, our successes, making sure that the team, the, each team is not just a service provider, but is also bringing uh, expertise on the table so that each other team can, can be guided in, in the right direction. Um, so that's that's really one of the things that I've appreciated over my years, and it's been pushed down from uh, management down to uh, every developers where we have this mentality of acting as experts to others. Uh, so we, we have that as a embedded engineers model where we have some of our, our folks within our team dedicated to, uh, to the game teams. And same thing with the ops team, they have ded dedicated uh, embedded engineers from their team dedicated to, uh, to our team, uh, making sure that we're not in silos. So that, that's definitely a recommendation I would give to anyone in, in this industry, making sure that uh, the silos are broken and that each team is, is, uh, is um, teaching other teams their, about their uh, best practices. Fantastic. And, you know, we, we love that customers are willing to partner in that way and, and leverage, you know, the teams that have those, those best practices. So, Gaspar, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us. It's been wonderful to chat with you and, and to learn more about how Square Enix is using MongoDB and, uh, and everything in the game space. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Have a question or a suggestion for the show? Visit us in the MongoDB community forums at community.mongodb.com. Did you know that MongoDB University has been completely redesigned from the ground up? Hands-on labs and quizzes, bite-sized video lectures, learn at your own pace, study guides and materials, 100% free access to MongoDB training. Visit mdb.link learn. Advance your career and learn MongoDB today. Check the show notes for links.